Hey, you're listening to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about this year's Oscar nominees for Best Picture. And today we are talking about maybe the uh, most politically charged movie that we've talked about on this show. We're going to talk about The Zone of Interest. Directed by Jonathan Glazer, this movie is up for Best Picture obviously. Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best International Feature being only the third film to be nominated of those submitted ever by the UK. Anyway, this movie is a Holocaust movie. It is quite different from other Holocaust movies. Now, not that we've talked about a Holocaust movie on this show that I can think of. I guess Jojo Rabbit but this is a very unique movie. It's a very artful movie, and it's one that is very hard to get away from talking about the political implications of this sh- of this movie. So I will warn you right now that this is going to get very political very quickly in a, in a way that a lot of our other episodes don't. I do want to warn you about that because this is a very different vibe than most of our other episodes. Speaking on that same note, this is one of very, 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 very few episodes of of Classic Movies Live that Pierre was not able to join us for. So uh, while we eagerly await Pierre's return on the next episode, we will be joined today... It'll be just me, Jeff, and Rach, who you will have last heard on our uh, Romantic Comedies episode, which, again, was a very different vibe. This is a very strange episode. It's a very strange movie, honestly, but it is a very good movie. I can tell you right now that Rach and I will both recommend that you go and see this, and I am very excited and nervous, actually, for people to hear our conversation on this, because I think it was a really good conversation, uh, but I think it was very different from what we normally do on this show. I'm nervous. I'm Frankly, I'm excited and also nervous for people to hear this. And what is even more nerve-wracking is I don't have good... Uh, I don't have any good intro music for you. So we're probably just going to have like a five-second pause and go straight into the episode. This is a very unique episode of Classic Movies Live about the zone of interest. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where typically we don't talk about politically charged movies, but uh, we kind of have to today. And for what it's worth, I think this is a movie that I am pretty excited to talk about, but also uh, fills me with a lot of dread to talk about. Joining me today is our good friend Rach, who was last heard, if I'm not mistaken, on our Drinking Buddies episode, which was a very different vibe. It was the uh, rom-com episode, actually. Oh, I couldn't remember what ep- what order those were in. So it was uh, a still an extremely different vibe. Yes, very. <laughs> Less funny. So thank you for coming on, Rach. I do have to say, just because otherwise uh, people are going to wonder why I'm not saying this, Pierre, unfortunately, could not join us today 
uh, he will be back for the next episode. And I think he has seen Zone of Interest, so we can get his we can get his uh, thoughts on it. But he's he's just not he wasn't able to make it today. Um, but speaking of that, we are talking today about Zone of Interest. And thank you very much for coming on, Rach, to uh, talk about Zone of Interest. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself before I introduce the movie? I'm sort of doing things in a weird order here. No, it's fine. Um, I don't. I'm Rach. <laughs> My main like attachment to this movie, I guess, or the way that I'm connected to this movie. Um, I'll go ahead and spoil it. I loved this movie, which was. It wasn't necessarily surprising, but it's one of the only Holocaust movies that I've ever liked um, because my grandmother survived the Holocaust. Um, I have a very specific relationship to the Holocaust. Um, And so this movie hit home in a lot of ways for me. And so that's part of why I'm here to talk about it, just sort of my perspective on it. Um, But yeah, I mean, in terms of how I'm attached to this episode not (laughs) I like movies a lot I liked this movie and I guess I get to bring the perspective of someone with a relative who survived the holocaust I think it's a I'm I'm really happy like I wasn't sitting here like we absolutely need someone connected to the holocaust to talk about this movie but on the other hand I am very happy that we do have that connection because uh I mean Pierre and I have I can't technically speak for him but i would assume he doesn't have that much of a direct connection and uh i don't really either i can talk a little bit about it but i definitely don't have a connection in that way so uh when you were sending me some of your initial thoughts there was a line in there about uh that will that will come up uh about um the ways that we watch movies that we are disconnected from and uh i I'm I'm paraphrasing the line extremely here, but essentially it was like, it's not bad to do that. It's just like you watch it in a very different way. Yeah, and I'm also, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I have a very specific perspective. My family is Jewish, but I wasn't raised Jewish. Um, it was my grandmother on my dad's side and my dad himself was kind of an agnostic. So I do have a very sort of specific relationship to it I don't have like I like I wrote and like we'll get to there's this is also a very different type of movie to watch if you're Jewish and this is a movie about your group of people and to some extent of course I do see them as my people like I I do understand like ancestrally that I'm Jewish and my husband is Jewish I'm I'm still very much I don't know near that community but I mean, I think you definitely watch this differently, being Jewish with no relationship to it, being having nothing to do with any of it, to the extent that you can have nothing to do with any of it. It's really a part of shared history that's been pushed home for a lot of people. I think a lot of people feel a lot of connection to this in a way they might not feel connected to like, you know, Rwanda, um, just because of how much it's like been uh, talked about and taught in general. I think we all still feel pretty connected to it, but yeah, it's all to different degrees. Well, and I guess in specifically the Rwanda example, I think that uh, I think that it definitely plays into it that um, us and presumably most of our audience is um, from North America and Europe. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is 
directly affecting North Americans and Europeans more so than I hate to put Rwanda on blast here, but like more so than Rwanda. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, with that little uh, introduction out of the way, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this movie and just why we're talking about it. Uh, the Zone of Interest is nominated for several Oscars, including Best Picture, which is the main reason we're talking about it. Normally, this is the kind of movie that as much as I really, really loved it, I would try very hard to just not bring up on this show because it is, again, very politically charged. And uh, we have had, we have expressed political opinions on this show, but it's like not, it's not something that, uh, is, it's not something that's easy to do, which I think is something we're going to talk about in this episode, come to think of it, the more I think, the more I say things like that. Um, but it is nominated for Best Picture. It's nominated for Best Director for Jonathan Glazer, which, if I'm not mistaken, is his first Best Director nomination. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, which is a really interesting one for Jonathan Glazer. Best International Feature Film from the UK, which is actually the only only the third time that a UK film has been nominated for, uh, that a film submitted by the UK has been nominated for that particular award. And uh, it's also super weird that this was nominated for the UK. Like, I get it. Jonathan Glazer is from the UK, but this is a almost distinctly Polish film. Um, but Poland went with something else. Uh, and it was nominated for Best Sound for Tarn Willers and Johnny Byrne. Um, this movie, uh, I was actually looking up the plot of the book that this is based on uh, because I have not read the book and I'm interested to do so but i haven't read it yet i never got the chance yet um the book that this is based on is much more sounds seems to be much more narratively driven and is technically fictional like it's about the same family but it is a fictionalized account in the sense that like even the characters have different names where in this i'm sure it's i'm sure that they didn't send a documentary crew back in time obviously but it is otherwise still it is the like real family here. Um, but this movie is about the, it's about Rudolf and Hedwig Haas, who were the Rudolf Haas was, I believe the commandant of Auschwitz at the very mm -hmm. least he was, uh, well, at least through in, in over the course of the movie, the main impression we get about him is that he is an engineer in charge of, uh, the engineering at Auschwitz is what I'll say for the moment. Um, and it's very strange. The move, the way this movie is set up, it's very, it's almost voyeuristic. Like there's kind, there are events that happen. I would hesitate to call it much of a plot. It's really just, we're observing Rudolph and Hedwig in their daily life over the course of, seems like a couple of months but it could be a couple of days like it doesn't it's not really clear how long it is it's just sort of over some days and uh yeah actually the way this was shot too um i when i watched this uh jonathan glazer was there to talk a little bit about how this was shot and they had set up they actually shot it in a very voyeuristic way they set up a bunch of hidden cameras and then just had the actors uh, very choreographed go through their uh, go through their performances but like they wanted to make it feel as naturalistic as possible 
And um, that's what this movie is. It's very strange because this is very much like in in a way it's not the movie i would typically describe this way but it is very much a vibes movie and it's also nominated for best picture which is not the kind of movie that normally gets nominated for best picture um yeah i i think i was reading about the way that it's shot and hearing like the language of i think they said like big brother at auschwitz like the reality show big brother was the way he used like they described it themselves just because it's so many simultaneous cameras set up and sometimes the takes, I think they were saying, were like 10 minutes long of just them being able to go through all the way, which I think it's such a play in that mm-hmm. way. It's like a theater, uh, piece of theater almost, um, which I think is super interesting. But it is funny how the language, the way we talk about experimental movies really clashes with any kind of really heavy topic because it ends up sounding like silly when the whole point of it is so serious compared to what we would normally think of with a lot of experimental movies. Yeah. Which I think is actually, it's weird because that's what this movie does so well is by comparison to a lot of other similar movies, it kind of makes those other movies look silly, but the best language that I have to talk about this movie is uh, absurd. I'm talking about it as a vibes movie, which isn't wrong. It's just a really weird way of describing something you know, that a movie that's this dire, actually, maybe that's a better word or at least not a better word. It's a more serious word. Yeah. Atmospheric, I think, mm-hmm. is the the go to serious vibes. Yeah. It's a that's, very atmospheric that's, film. Yeah. Fair. I, I definitely I guess you can tell that I'm not a professionally trained critic. <laughs> I mean, this is it's. Jonathan Glazer, right? Like, I just watched Under the Skin last night, and that's a vibes movie. <laughs> like, because um, I was just trying to see, you know, what else has he been doing? And I, I can see how they're really similar. Um, you're just sort of following people doing things, and it, it's up to you to take sort of what they're doing. I do think he gives the audience a little bit more here. Um, like you were saying, there's no... There is a plot and I see people describing it in reviews sometimes. And I think it's a little silly to describe the plot like out of context. Like, oh, a husband and wife live together and he has to get moved. (laughs) You're like, I guess. But it's all there to specifically show juxtaposition and to me. And when you give the plot summary, you don't include any of the stuff it's directly playing off of. You know, you have a character who's desperately attempting not to leave Auschwitz. She's like, yeah. please let me stay here, please. It's because like, it's paradise for her. Right. Which is so strange. I think like all of everything about this movie, all of the things that hit the hardest are those bizarre juxtap- juxtapositions. It's not not useful to describe the plot, but the thing is the plot is so trite in this movie that like it feels like it shouldn't matter. It's a movie about a person who is getting moved to a different office in a promotion, actually. Right. But like, because he's getting his promotion, it might, it might tear his family apart. Now, the thing that, that, that no part of that says is that all of this is happening at Auschwitz with the guy who designs the ovens. Like this is, there's no good way to work that into a description of the plot of this movie. I mean, you can, but like the point, the plot of this movie has nothing to do with 
what you would expect it to have to do with being a movie at p- taking place at Auschwitz, literally uh, on the other side of the wall. Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, logistics and operations commandant <laughs> at Auschwitz sort of doing um, doing his job, his everyday job, and they he's so good at it. He's so good at logistics and operations at Auschwitz that they're like, we're scaling up. It's a very corporate movie, which I do operations coordination. And so watching it, I, I like totally recognize these, not like obviously totally recognize it, but I know the meetings and I know what he's looking at. He's like, oh, that is very efficient. That's super efficient. And it's like, right, that gets into your brain. You really do start thinking of everything in terms of efficiency. (laughs) What's the easiest way? I think to me, like the the line, the way I should say this is the most poignant line. The way I'm going to say it is the line that goes the hardest is like near the end, he's talking about how he went to a party and he's talking to his wife Hedwig over the phone and saying, yeah, I couldn't really focus. I was just thinking about how I would gas everyone in that room. It would be very difficult because of the high ceilings. And right. like the way that he's talking about it, it's not even talking about it with animosity towards people in the room necessarily. I mean, I guess, kind of. But like he's talking about it like, like he's just always thinking of work. And this is another thing where he's like, well, what if I had this room to work with? What would it, what would it be like? Right. And that's so much part of it. The logistics for him is these are people he knows and likes. These are Nazis. He's talking purely about Nazis in that scene. So mm-hmm. he's also got that logistics brain all the way kicked in. I mean, he's full of hate. Um, and so is Hedwig in different ways, or it it comes out in different ways in them. But beyond that, this is just his job and he loves working. She says that early on. Her mom is there and she's like, he loves it. He's working day and night. You know, even when he's home, it's great for him. He lo- you know, he loves just working right here. <laughs> it's like, great. Yeah, it's so much of the dialogue in this movie could just be someone, you know, like those scenes could actually just be like, not not my mom, but like someone's mom visiting them to talk about their husband's work. Like, it's just very, it's very naturalistic dialogue. And that's, what's so insidious about this movie. Yes. Yeah. And I think what people reacted really negatively to, which I guess I don't blame people, but there are, you know, not that Letterboxd is the end all be all there. It's all normal people. I'm a normal person. So I get it. (laughs) Um, But there are some, I think, bad or shallow takes online that sort of relate to like, I don't care about what these people are talking about. It's like, it's like, me well, neither. that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's so stupid. Like, what is the point of them? <laughs> Obviously. So I can already feel myself really, really, really wanting to dig into the themes of this movie. But very quickly first, let's. Ta- I want to talk about some of the specific individual aspects that this movie is nominated for, because I think they also feed into the themes. And if we just talk about them uh, in like capsules now, they'll all come back. Mm-hmm. Um. But what I was specifically interested in, because you brought it up earlier, and I actually, I have been meaning to watch lots of other Jonathan Glazer movies, and I just have never had the opportunity yet. Um, I'm curious, I want to know, uh, I, I wanted to talk about Jonathan Glazer as a director here, and as an adapt, and as someone who adapted the screenplay, but uh, I'm curious how this um, sort of... Uh, how this relates to his other film, not maybe, not maybe how it relates, but how is this in relation to 
which I guess is how it relates, but like under the skin. And if you've seen any of the other ones, because you've seen Jonathan Glazer's movies, I have not. I so I've only seen Under the Skin, which is also adapted, which I thought was interesting, and he greatly changed. I think I like read pretty quickly because I was just you know like on the Wikipedia page for it, and someone had said you know he got like a really clear adapted screenplay for the book that was really literal and he said okay i don't want to do that um but i would he said i think he said i don't want to adapt the book but i do want to turn the book into a film i think that's definitely what he's done here because having read some um synopses of the book this is based on it's way different Mm -hmm. um and even the point of that i don't think the main themes of that are even necessarily the same um it might even just be that he's very willing to credit what he what inspired him to make the movie almost like you know i was looking at this material and i was like this gives me an idea and then he makes the movie and he calls it an adapted screenplay but it's so barely adapted i i do wonder a little bit um i do wonder a little bit like how much he works with the novelists because i know that in this movie like when, well, when you go to the Wikipedia page, it specifically has a picture of the novelist right next to a picture of him. But also, like, when I've heard him talk about it, I am fairly certain that he, I don't think he saw this novel, was inspired, and then never talked to the novelist again. Like, I think he is, like, mm-hmm. I don't know how closely they're working together, but it definitely sounds to me like when he's creating when he's turning the book into a movie at the very least he's like going through the novelist being like hey i understood your book this way you know is this is this does what what do you think of this movie that i'm trying to make based on this that's what it sounds like i guess maybe i'm interpreting that into it but well i mean them even being involved is huge and Mm -hmm. and in terms of directing style like this compared to under the skin they both really let you sort of figure out what's going on and what it means. I've only seen Under the Skin once, and I don't think that's enough to understand it um, fully and completely, especially when you read his thoughts on it. He's like, it's not really about gender, um, which I can totally see, but I think there's a lot of people who are reading it about gender. This one, I think he's been a lot more clear on what he intends, and I think on purpose there's a kind of... um, not that it's necessarily morally better, but I sort of appreciate that he's not leaving this one as up much up to chance what he's trying to tell us, <laughs> the audience. I think it's a I think it's a topic and a theme that people engage with very much more concretely than something like gender. Like if you say a mo- if you make a movie that could be about gender and you say it's not about gender, people aren't going to question you too much about that. If you make a movie about the Holocaust, people will immediately want to know what your stance is on I guess the Holocaust, but like what you're trying to say with your movie because it's just something that's it's such a hot issue. If it ever comes up in a movie, people want a very specific narrative told to them. And um, if you are doing anything that might that might even look like it's deviating from that narrative, people will people will question you on it very quickly. So I think you have to be more explicit about a film like this. Yeah, and it's clear that he he still took on some of that risk, apparently, (laughs) because people still have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in my opinion, I don't think this was too risky compared to, you know, Under the Skin is very 
an exploration. Most things about gender are an exploration of the topic. You don't explore mm-hmm. this topic. I mean, there's there's facets of it, I guess, that are being explored that are, are slightly more nebulous, but they're all clearly on on one side of the issue. It's not right. how bad is this or is this a problem? It's, you know, and what does that mean right now? <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie is, it's, it's really, it's really like, it's really timely. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, he said that himself. He said multiple times, at least he's got the one quote that I specifically know, like this movie isn't about then it's about now. And he said that versions of that many times, which, um, I don't know if that always clicks for everybody. I, I don't know. I've definitely seen one or two admittedly extremely bad takes that were pointed out to me because they were bad takes that, that did not click for them at all. Yeah, which is very weird. I'm sure we'll get to it, but it's very weird to watch any Holocaust movie and think that it's not supposed to resonate with you now and not mm. just be a historical exploration of a thing that happened. It's very odd to me to watch anything about the Holocaust and think to yourself, you know, well, can't believe that happened and just sort of move on. And yeah, thank God we're past that. Exactly. It's like, yeah, if we're making movies about it, we're clearly past it. Exactly. Um, and then one other, one other thing, taking a slight detour from Jonathan Glazer, uh, this movie is nominated for Best Sound for Tarn Willers and Johnny Byrne. It is not nominated for Best Soundtrack for uh, or Best Original Score for um, Mika Levy. I don't want to say that to take some, to take any of the attention off of Tarn Willers and Johnny Byrne, uh, but I think that the sound and the soundtrack in this movie is so it's so haunting and it it adds so much to how you interpret this movie. And I think that I think the movie just doesn't work without the sound at all so i think yeah. this is i i mean i don't know if it's a shoe in to win but like i mean i've i've said it on other episodes i think i've said it to other people like in almost every category that this is nominated in this is my number one choice personally with the only exception being international feature film because it's such an incredibly strong category but even yeah. there this is like tied for number one um yeah but yeah anyway the sound that's what i was trying to say the sound of this movie is brutal. Like this is, you have to see this when, when I have recommended to people uh, how they should see this, like people talking about I'm needing to wait for VOD or whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. If you can see it in a theater with a good sound system, because that's like half the movie, half the yeah. movie is the sound. Yeah. The sound is like horrifying, obviously. I mean, I, I guess to describe it, you have all that stuff going on that we've talked about in the foreground and in the background, you can just sort of hear the the daily sounds of Auschwitz, which are is crazy. I mean, it's it's nuts to hear and like um, to hear dogs barking. I kept thinking about the <laughs> the dogs barking and obviously like sporadic gunshots. It's terrifying. Well, and the second time I saw this, I think I saw this in a, uh, the second time I saw it, I saw it in a theater that had a decent sound. It was good enough. It was a good enough sound system, but it wasn't like perfect. And actually I am, especially this year, I'm like not battling hearing loss necessarily, but I have really bad hearing. 
and it's mm-hmm. been especially bad this year. So I went in, uh, I went into the movie this week and um, I just like, I, I could, I could hear it, but like even the stuff in the foreground was, I was having trouble hearing that. So everything kind of swam together, which mm-hmm. gave me a completely different experience altogether. Because like at that point, the stuff that's in the background in some scenes might as well be in the foreground, which I guess it kind of is anyway, just based on the context of it. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of made everything feel as relevant as each other, which, okay, relevant is a weird word there, but it sort of made everything feel as much in the foreground as everything else, just that you can't see the things that are associated with this one entire sub movie that's happening. Actually, when I heard them, Uh, when I heard the filmmakers talk about it at TIFF, one of them specifically said, there are two movies here, and one Mm -hmm. is just the movie you hear. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And the sound kept just being... The first time I saw this, like I was crying like the whole time. (laughs) Um, I think from when she tries the coat on, or when when she brings the clothes for them to look at, um, which is like a very, it's the moment I think that the background sound gets humanized specifically where you're like, oh, that's where that's come. People wear clothes. Right. And it sort of just like hits all at once. Um, but, uh, I was just like crying the whole time and like flinching at the sounds. Cause it was just like, that's how ha- that's happening. Like right now, <laughs> like we have to go, there's an urgency to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Speaking about how that how that's happening right now, I think that we have. Uh, I think that this is the part where it's it's hard to hold back talking about what this movie is actually about, and I think we probably just should do that at this point. We've we've gotten the things out of the way where it's like this is a movie show where we have to talk about it because it is up for awards at the Oscars. Now let's talk about what this movie is actually about. Um, do you want to do you want to start with that or do you want me to figure out um, how to finish that sentence? No, I can. So for me right now, this movie is most relevant to like the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Um, it was made before that became especially urgent, but not before that was existing. Um, mm-hmm. This has been going on for a, a long time. Um, has been urgent and been called genocide for a while, but it all just sort of came to the forefront and we're seeing so much more public language spoken about annihilation um, or, you know, killing everybody involved, things like that, where it's clear the intent is genocidal intent. But along with that, it's something that now we have constant peripheral access to. If you go on Twitter or X or whatever and or any news site and you open that and you read it right now, you will see like five of the worst things that you've ever seen in your entire life um, and you scroll past them. They are background noise to some extent. Um, and so even beyond the specific, you know, I mean, there is a wall. And there was recently an attack. It's very difficult to talk about this kind of thing without sounding problematic. Obviously, neither one of us is in favor of Hamas or terrorist attacks or taking hostages. But the disproportionate response has been clearly genocidal. 
And clearly this has been taken advantage of to go further than that. And we're seeing so much of that right now and ignoring it just to go through our everyday life. And, and we are ignoring it. Like we ha- you have to ignore this stuff in order to go about your daily life. And I think that there's this thought that I don't know if I've like been taught this or if I've just always thought it or if I have even thought it at all, just maybe had it as a thought that I have not acknowledged being real. But like there's this thought that if you go back, if you go far enough back in time, then theoretically atrocities could have been happened that pe- happening that people just yeah, atrocities could have been happening on a massive scale that people just weren't aware of and i don't know if that actually applies back in the 40s like i think that more people were aware of this stuff going on than we like to think about however since that was indeed a long time ago it's like well is that far enough back can we think of that as far enough back and just say, well, some people didn't know, so we're probably fine. But like, we don't, there's stuff that's happening now. It's on your, it's in your peripheral vision. It's on Twitter. It's any, like I, I wake up in the morning and within five minutes, whatever I have looked at, something about Israel is there. Uh, so something about that current conflict is there. And if something, um, you know, anything that's going on in the world, we have immediate access to that. You can't ignore this stuff or you have to, no, you have to, you have to make a conscious effort to ignore things that are going on now more than ever. And like, when I think about that, it's like, was, was, was going back any amount of time actually far enough? And I think that this movie kind of points that out that like, Oh no, the people who are there, yes, admittedly, this movie is following Nazis who literally could not possibly ignore it. But at the same time, they are making that same active choice to ignore the extent of what they're doing so that they can live their paradise, their their life in paradise at Auschwitz. Yeah, and it's not 100% relevant because like you're saying, what we're seeing in this movie is people directly involved in it. Mm-hmm. But I know historically I was taught in school, and I think they've changed this, but I was taught that the German people had no idea. They had no idea what was going on there. And I think that's only true to the extent that they didn't know about the gas chambers. But it, it's obvious, and it's sort of come to light, and that's sort of been revised and corrected, that obviously they did. The same way that, like, you or I, I'm in the United States. I know that the United States prison system is inhumane and I know where the prison is. (laughs) So I know that there's a prison like two hours from me Mm -hmm. where inhumane things are happening to people. I live within a hundred miles of the border to Mexico. Border patrol is like on the highway here. I know there are detention camps in my general area obviously and when there were you know child detention centers and things like that and there still are those are near me and so no I don't know the details of what's going on there but I don't know what I'm supposed to know about those things that's supposed to spur me into action because a lot of the way it was taught to us was you know maybe if the people had known I think that's what's been so jarring is there was a lot of like if the people had known what was going on there they might have stopped it but that's why you couldn't tell them I think it's becoming very, very clear that that's just not true. Mm -hmm. People just aren't going to do anything. 
well, and at least to some degree, people can't like every every everyday right. people just can't do it anything. But like the, I guess I guess part of the problem too is like, you know, it feels like even. I don't know. I'm 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 sort of uh, I'm sort of chasing a thought that's not quite coming, but like, to what extent can people actually not do anything? Like, I don't know. I can't I can't go to the prison and tear it down, but like, does that mean I can't do anything? I don't know. I don't know what my options are. I don't know what I can do about stuff like that. Right, and I'm in a red state, so like, I have distinct memories of growing up in like a high school class, and someone would be like. If I knew that was happening, I would take my gun and I would go down there. Like you have like, you know, 15, 16 year old boys kind of getting like Rambo ideas. Like I'm going to show up. That's what I have my gun for is to stop things like this from happening. Or I don't know if you ever heard this. Like what if the Jews had had guns, which they did. Um, <laughs> like there were uprisings. There were um, uprisings within ghettos that did happen and they failed because they were against the Nazis. But um, <laughs> like. I used to hear that all the time, which was crazy. And I think it kind of a singular experience to where I'm located, I guess, because I tell other people this and they're like, I have no memory of anyone saying crazy stuff like that. But um, I remember hearing that. And as soon as the border camps um, started becoming more and more of like a public thing, the the border, sorry, the outdoor detention facilities for children <laughs> at the border, um, it was like, so you guys going to grab your gun or like, when does that kick in was always my first thought. So I was like, so what's it going to take for that, that guy to get up and actually do it? Or was that just posturing? Which of course it was posturing. Yeah. I, I knew a guy in university who, um, <laughs> honestly, one of the worst guys I've ever met. I don't want to just put him on blast with everything that's bad about him, but like, um, at one point, I don't remember the context, but it was something about school shootings. And he was like, yeah, if any of, if any of, if, if that happened in my school, like if, when I was a student, I would have, I would have gotten my gun and I would have been, I would have been right there. I would have been defending. I would have stopped that shooter. And I'm like, you can say that because you're a 24 year old in university. Like you're never going right. to be in a situation where you have to maybe make good on that weird claim of having a gun as an elementary school student. Right. It's a fantasy. Like people mm-hmm. use it as fodder for fantasy for themselves. And now that it's all happening, I think that fantasy is sort of really gone away. But I mean, of course. Because now you have to do something. So it's a lot easier to just find reasons why it's not as bad, actually, and that we can just ignore it and go on our regular lives. Yeah. Or if that means buying into, you know, Zionist ideology, which... I'm not a Zionist. Um, I know a lot of Jews who aren't Zionists. I'm not using that word as a dog whistle, just to be super clear. Um, But to use, just buy into Zionist ideology because you can, um, because it's a lot easier, (laughs) is also an option for ignoring it. I think, um, I'm I'm skipping around a little bit on uh, on our document here, but I think that that is what, like, really gets to the core of what makes this movie so horrifying to me is banality of evil is like such a, it's such a, it's a statement that I don't know how often I've heard in a context where it's worth taking seriously. Like 
it gets brought up a lot. Like evil is really boring, stuff like that. And it's really hard to make a movie that, um, to make a movie or any kind of media period that like talk that can effectively communicate just how boring the day to day of things like a genocide are and what you have to do to maintain to maintain that to keep that going like Auschwitz had engineers that were picking between different oven different uh, oven manufacturers because that's what they needed they needed new machinery and so they went to the people that made the machinery and got their pitches like and we're going to help is, them get a patent for it. They yeah. talk about that. We're going to help you get this patented. <laughs> like, oh, thank God. Yeah. And like <laughs> this movie does that so well because nothing about this movie is exciting. It's it's just day-to-day logistics and Hedwig talking about her flowers and talking to her mom. And like, it's, this movie is so boring that it is in fact terrifying because of it. Yeah. I know a lot of people don't like um, a later portion of the movie where he is getting promoted. And so he goes and he's at more of like a headquarters. I'm not a hundred percent sure where he is, but he's uh, meeting. Oh no. He's right. being stationed. He might be in Berlin actually. Maybe he's not in Oranienburg because it's the meeting where he's getting promoted. Yeah. And he's, they're going through, you know, we have all these, this new wave of Hungarian Jews coming through. We we made an agreement with the Hungarian government. It's my grandmother's a Hungarian Jew. So this is always a big, um, that was a big moment of crying. But um, they're speaking about it super logistically. And they're speaking about, you know, so we're going to need to scale this up. And here's the plan of how things are going to go. And I knew, like, I knew my grandmother went to Auschwitz first. And then because she talks about, you know, and then I went to Krakow and then we went back to Auschwitz um, and stuff like that. And she talks about the difference between the camps and things like that. But um, it's to hear they're like, so here's how we're going to, you know, logistically go about this. These are the train routes we need to use. You know, don't worry. We're going to save some of them to be used for labor, uh, which made me think of Schindler's List. (laughs) Um, It's like the system that's in place in Schindler's List is them hiring prisoners on right to um work for him which is different he's not like the bad guy in that movie obviously but um like that's the system that he's taking advantage of there and just sort of you know here's the plan and we got to move him back into auschwitz because this new guy can't handle the new scale of stuff that we got coming through it's very like a factory it's manufacturing and that to me is the banality of evil like it just it's a project meeting with all the regional managers and we gotta we need to align on our goals for this upcoming project as we scale up you know it's really cold in that way Mm -hmm. near that scene it's the last scene of the movie there's a uh there's a segment where he's walking up and down he's walking down some stairs and he is like dry heaving trying to vomit and he just can't for whatever reason and Mm -hmm. it cuts into uh, it cuts between him walking down the stairs and the only like a very strange out of time portion of this movie where it goes to um just documentary footage of the people working at the auschwitz museum uh cleaning the ovens 
and then cutting mm-hmm. back to him and then it cuts back to the people cleaning Auschwitz and then it cuts back to him one more time and then it ends. And like, I have a lot of thoughts on every part of that scene, but specifically, I think that like him walking down those stairs is the, it's the closest thing. It, it's the closest thing to teasing something that is like traditionally satisfying in this movie because it's like, Oh, he knows what he's doing is bad, which isn't, probably the actual thing that's happening there but narratively it feels like he's walking down and he's disgusted with what he's doing except not really and at the end he just finishes walking down the stairs but narratively that kind of feels like you know that's that's the that's the visual indicator the actual where we can see it on screen that he knows that everything he that he knows everything he's doing. He knows everything that he's doing. He knows all the consequences. He knows the specific number numerical consequences of what of everything that he's in, involved in. And he just finishes walking down the stairs anyway. He's going to his new job. Like right. He's there's no there's no satisfying resolution there, which obviously there can't be in this movie, but I think that's the like closest thing. The closest this movie gets to anything that's almost like traditionally narratively structured and it's still one of the weirdest scenes in the movie well normally or a lot of times at the end of a holocaust movie right you they'll show you survivors most of whom i think are dead now obviously like i think the the vast majority but it's like i think of the end of schindler's list right you see the survivors go to his grave and so i think that's sort of this movie's way of doing that the closest they can get because they do show you what i would consider to be the sort of like hallmark um symbols of that kind of thing which are the piles of shoes um like the remnants of people because this movie never shows us um like to our knowledge you know a jew i would say for the entire time a, a living person who is undergoing these hardships um specifically on the other side of the wall and so we see the same thing for now. And yeah, there is a sense of, you know, we got them, I guess. Eventually this failed, which everyone watching knows, but maybe needs, I don't know, a reminder in the bleakest way he can manage <laughs> that it did I end. I hadn't actually thought of it in the context of like, uh, in, in that specific context of Schindler's List, because at the end of Schindler's List, the survivors go to his grave. It's like they're it's it's the people that he saved, like, right. you know, a tribute to Sch- to Oscar Schindler. We see the survivors in this one, too. We see the survivor, the person, the person that he said, the thing that he saved. We see we see how it's doing today. He was the gas chamber guy. We see how the gas chamber has survived up until this day. And right. that's his legacy, and it's still there. Yeah. I I think that's sort of where it's powerful, that, and you get to sort of sneak in, not sneak in, but wedge in some of the more traditional images of the Holocaust that I think we use to mm-hmm. indicate these are, like, very um, strong images. I can refer to almost always in, like, any group of people, Um you know, the pile of shoes. Mm-hmm. Like everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, or, you know, like the gold teeth, which we see in this movie, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. So I think it's also a way to have that be there and for it to be in the memory of the people who died. Whereas, you know, Schindler's List is a savior movie, it's plenty of um, torture 
for the audience. Uh, there's plenty of horror in that movie. Um, but it's also really about saving people, right? The, the people that were saved. And so at the end, you show the living, obviously. I mean, the, the dead right. haunt the screen. It's not like the viewer is like, oh, I'm whatever about them. But it's really about the people he saved. And the movie is largely about him. <laughs> I talked to my dad about this movie and... Um, it's the first movie I've ever told my dad, like, if you have it in you to see this movie, because he doesn't watch Holocaust media either, really. Um, like, this is a good one, <laughs> if you want to see it. And uh, he was talking to me about how, like, in our house, we never did. And he was like, you know, I had Schindler's List. I bought a copy of Schindler's List just to show you. Like, it was like, we're going to sit down because he, like, did not know how to talk to me about this or educate me about this. He didn't need to. History classes covered that. But, like, yeah. he was like, and, you know, it's still wrapped in plastic. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen it. And it's it's really about, you know, a savior. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, they had to make it for Hollywood. They had to make it a, a story people could handle. And I was thinking about with this movie, they really don't do that. <laughs> we've moved past that thankfully making a story that people can stomach with with some ounce of inspiration in it i don't think there's really a moment of inspiration in this movie yeah i mean i think that just just the way that i mean the way that it's structured is so antithetical to even telling a story like that period yeah um and I don't know. I don't know how you could restructure the story that is told in this to be anything like a parable of a good person or a bad person or anything like that. It's just sort of it just doesn't fit that mold even a little bit. There's no fantasy in this. I, I think mm-hmm. Schindler's List offers you the fantasy of um, if I had been there, I would have done everything I could. Mm-hmm. I think stories about Anne Frank, and I mean, these are true stories. So like, I don't want to say that, you know, they're trite or not true, but you know, with Anne Frank, I would have hid people in my house, things like this, um, that that's what, where people want to be at. And it comes down to that same, you know, I would have taken a gun, this fantasy of like, I would have done something. And it's like, yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> probably this wouldn't have. This movie faces you specifically with that idea of, no, you probably wouldn't have. Because the the characters in this, Rudolf Haas, uh, Hedwig Haas, they're so relatable. And like, yeah. not in ways you want them to be relatable. They, but they're just living their lives. And like, I too am just living my life. What am I missing that I am either actively ignoring and shouldn't be, or that for whatever reason, I am, you know, maybe passively ignoring and should be realizing that I need to do something about Right. Yeah, my my job is in manufacturing and it's I live in a a town where we have, you know, some military. And so we do on occasion deal with like Raytheon, it's like weapons manufacturers. Um, And there's sort of an end point to my job wherein I'm like, I'm never going within a hundred miles of weapons ever again i i think about this all the time and i'm really like on a peripheral edge of it you know but it, mm. it's the kind of thing where i especially after watching this movie like i've had days at work where i'm just like oh right the war machine because it's the united states and so much manufacturing is related to that i mean if you worked at gm 
you know, you would be re- you would work at a company that made tanks. It, it's very hard to get away from out here. Um, and so I've had that thought of just like, oh, my God, like it's there, you know, blood on my hands or what have you. And I still have I quit my job. No, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> so well, because that would of course. And I mean, like, because can you like do you you don't have the means to quit your job sure. just because right? Right. And I mean, of course I could, right? Like, well, it was, we're watching a Holocaust movie or something. You're just like, fucking quit your job. Isn't it, wouldn't <laughs> it be easier, surely, for you to just not do this? Wouldn't you rather, when, when you can get in a really moralizing position, you're like, wouldn't you rather live on the street than have anything to do with this? Um, I remember reading a book that was about, like, epigenetic trauma, the concept of Maybe a lot of Jewish people have anxiety disorders because of like a genetic history of horrifying things happening. Um, And I don't know how much I believe in that theory, um, but they spoke about specifically that I think there was a, she mentioned seeing like at the window to where you looked into the gas chamber, someone had like a picture of their family like set up next to it because it was like remember why you're here like remember why you're clocked in it's like um the simpsons right the like do it for her oh my god and it's like right everybody involved was a human mm-hmm. um and everybody involved wasn't well they they knew to some extent but it was like what do i do like if do i move my whole family like they live there, they work there. They talk about all the factories are coming to around Auschwitz. There's a, por- a point in this movie where they're like, they said all the companies are moving out here, and they mentioned Siemens. I work with Siemens. Um, they're like Siemens is out here now. You know, I mean, everyone's coming out here. This is an industrial capital at this point. Are all these people going to leave? You know, <laughs> like what do you do? So I, it's definitely a big part of it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thinking about things like when, you know, in this situation, I would, wouldn't you rather do this or I would do this? Like, I think in this situation for them, it doesn't seem as bad. Like not only, not only are these specifically in this movie, the people who are thriving in this situation, right. but even the people who maybe aren't like, you know, the, the secretary who works the front door of Auschwitz or whatever, um, like maybe she's not doing, she's not probably doing as well as the rich commandant of Auschwitz. However, like for her, she's, uh, what am I trying to say? Like she's, she's just doing fine. And like, she doesn't have what, what, no matter how bad she might think things are, she has no idea. Probably. She probably actually has no idea that this is going to go down in history as the worst thing that ever happened. Like right. for her, it's fine right now. And what it goes down in history as doesn't really matter. Cause she won't be alive for all of history in this moment. Things are fine. I think the scary, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just saying this over and over and over again in this episode, but I think the scariest thing is like, you know, I don't know if the things that I am involved in right now are in fact part of the worst thing that ever happened 60 years down the line. I'm going to assume they aren't, but like, should I even be making that assumption? But something that I wrote down when I was thinking about this yesterday is like, 
if the Holocaust is the worst thing that ever happened, then by definition, nothing else can be worse. It was the right. worst thing. So if nothing else can be worse, if we have in our minds that nothing else can ever be worse, then it kind of feels like nothing else can ever be bad in a way. So, you know, if we are living through atrocities, whether we recognize them as that or anything, we can always say, well, it's not the Holocaust, which I don't know that anyone would say those words in that order and like non-flippantly, but like that thought is there. When, when there are atrocities going on, well, we can't compare them to the Holocaust because the Holocaust is the worst thing that ever happened. And how dare you compare them? Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about this too. There was so much of this when I was growing up and, and my dad does it, you know, and I, I respect that. My dad does it. And in my experience, knowing a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people are very protective of this too. Um, I would see something and I would be like, this sounds like a concentration camp or a labor camp. I'm almost never talking about the death camps. Um, I'm talking about, you know, Bergen-Belsen. Like I'm talking about, I can't remember if Bergen-Belsen is a labor camp or not, but there were camps where there weren't gas chambers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if people are being killed, they're all being shot, things like that. There's no systematic killing. And I would compare something to that, like the even calling them the camps at the border, I would get shut down on. Um, because it would be like, don't say that. And this always confused me because to me, the rhetoric of all of this stuff for me growing up, um, and I don't know about you, but it was all never again. Mm -hmm. And I, I took that to mean nothing like that ever again. And when I was thinking of the Holocaust, I wasn't only thinking of mass deaths in a gas chamber. You know, you think of Anne Frank, she died of disease. That That's lack of hygiene, um, lack of medical care, lack of humanity. And so I see a bunch of kids in sleeping in, you know, camps. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm concerned that we're approaching something that is the easiest thing to conjure visually for most people i think or at least my age who went to school are these visuals of the holocaust and the concentration camps i'm i'm concerned that's happening or we're approaching it or we're getting there and all you would hear is like you don't never compare anything to that mm -hmm. and this always was so confusing because i'm like surely that's the point right like i have a history degree and the whole point of history my understanding of it, right, was like no history so that you can stop it from happening again. But then you would say something and they would be like, no, don't say that. Never say that. And I remember my dad saying that with the child detention camps and me telling him like, you know, what's the line? Where do I get to say that? You know, when do these become that bad? Do I have to wait until after we find evidence of some horrible, horrible atrocity having happened at one of these detention centers to to say it? I, can I only say it in retrospect? Because surely the point is as a warning. This movie is more of a warning, I think, um, than a lot of other movies are. Or at least you're allowed to use it as one. <laughs> Maybe we've moved past that a little bit. But for a while it was, you know, never compare anything to the Nazis. 
never compare so-and-so's rhetoric to Hitler. It's, you know, sorry, that's the main touch point for fascism that people have. I could try to get into like the Spanish Civil War if you wanted to, but it wouldn't be evocative for people. It wouldn't reference anything they're familiar with. And yeah, it's always been really frustrating that it the special category of, you know, never again, but, you know, don't talk about it like that. Yeah. I mean, Hitler didn't build Auschwitz in a day. Like he didn't exist. Right. And then the Holocaust happened. There was a lot of buildup to it. The, the, the entire, the Holocaust was at, was the culmination of at least 40 years of like active planning. And if you think about it way more than that, and of non-active planning and of Jews being marginalized in specific ways that made it, that made that kind of thing acceptable. And it takes time to get there. And like, if we're comparing anything to the Holocaust, meaning that this is a one-to-one exact replica of what is, of what was happening in 1943, like we shouldn't have gotten to that point. And if that's the only time when we're allowed to bring up anything like that, then we just ignore everything else that leads us there. Yeah, and there's a, I was just looking up the name of it. There's a, there was a ship, the MS St. Louis, I think, which had a bunch of Jews on it from Germany that were seeking asylum. And they were going from country to country seeking asylum. And they got to the US and they said, hey, can you let us in? And they said, no, we're at quota. And they turned it away and all of those people died in Auschwitz. They never found a place to go. So you have refugee crises in recent years where, you know, it's, hey, guys, when we turn away refugees, you know what happens, right? (laughs) There's so many places for comparison that have been off limits that are so frustrating because I want to warn people. I want it to be a cautionary tale. So many Holocaust movies seem to be framed as cautionary tales, um, or they must be. As I've, I don't think I've mentioned it yet here, but I just find so many of them to be really crass and really gory and full of torture. And the reason that I'm given for that is so that we can see it as a warning. Look at how bad things can get. Look at how bad they can be. But then I'm not allowed to use any of these images or these symbols to attempt to stop it from happening is a very frustrating um, thing. And if it was just supposed to be subconscious, if we were all supposed to watch Sophie's Choice and Schindler's List, and it was all supposed to just soak in and for all of us to say, oh, man, we should let the refugees in. We should prevent, you know, genocides. It's not worked. And so either we have to try to start comparing things or something has to give because that way just has not functioned yet um, in any useful way. So it's always so frustrating to be shut down by people when you're just trying to like warn people. I'm worried that we're becoming, you know, like the German people who didn't know, but we have so much more access to things and Sorry, you can't don't call it a concentration camp. You know, that that's a pretty loaded term. It's like, right, I know. That's why I'm using it. <laughs> that's the point. It's loaded with exactly the meaning that I'm trying to convey. Right. And so what if it's never that bad? 
it's pretty bad that bad right it's pretty bad though (laughs) things going on are pretty bad and the stuff that we see coming out of gaza is bad in this very different way it reminds me we started watching 20 days in mariupol and i had to take a pause (laughs) halfway through um and it reminds me of that um which are a very different type of atrocity um they are reminiscent to me because it's reminiscent of the way that we ignore things just over the wall in this movie but um the things that you see coming out of there i i don't know how we get them much worse it's the fact that there were gas chambers is that what makes something worse than like all of these children are having amputations without anesthetic like where how are we ranking these things as one is worse than the other you know but yeah that that's the thing like if one of um if if our metric for what is the worst thing that ever happened includes very, very, very specific images that we can point to and say, if it doesn't have all of these hallmarks, it's not the same, then what? You just commit atrocities differently? Like, right. great, easy, easy. People can do that. People, bad people are very creative, as are yeah. good people, but like evil people can, evil people that are successful, anyone who's successful is very creative in their endeavors. That's part of, you know, I I teach a class on work on workplace etiquette uh, and profession and professionalism, and the best way to excel at your job is to be creative and be a good problem solver. So right. if your problem is that we have a very specific way of doing genocide here, but we would like a different way so that people don't recognize it as genocide, well, the people who are going to excel are going to be the people who can create a different way to do genocide. Right, or even just killing. Some of the um, images are so evocative. Right, the gas chamber as a concept. Um, I think of like the death penalty in the U S which is in no way the same, obviously, Mm -hmm. but people are very comfortable with that. I remember when the plan came to maybe we use gas chambers, literal single person gas chambers, which can be more quote unquote humane than what's been happening, which is these like weird cocktails of experimental drugs because they can't get the proper drugs anymore And so the drugs they've been using have been, like, really spotty and people have been living for a long time. So, right, like, anything that's at least not torture for as long is, quote, Mm -hmm. more humane. But everyone had a pretty immediate no to that because their actual line for what was inappropriate was something that looked like a gas chamber. We can't gas people. (laughs) You can shoot people. You can shoot them up with experimental drugs that might kill them. But a gas chamber, that sounds a little bit too much like the Holocaust. And it's like, wait, so what? I mean, full disclosure, I am very against the death penalty. Yeah, me too. Um, But like, to me, I hear that and I'm like, now if we've gotten this far and we've gotten to the point where people are saying no, and I would also say probably no, hard no to gassing people. (laughs) Should we consider that maybe it should be a hard no on killing people, period? Maybe right. that's maybe that should be the line. Now that, now that we've gotten to the place where the image is actually something we don't like, let's examine what we clearly weren't paying attention to before. Right. Your problem with it is the method of killing? That can't be it. People were shot during the Holocaust, too, in, in firing squad. People were... I guess nobody lethal injection was sort of safe for that, right? Because nobody had an image of that being used. <laughs> so well, you could just lethal inject. And I'm just thinking to like Holocaust education that I got as well. 
I had also heard that part of the advantage of gas chambers was that it was a quicker, a more quote unquote humane death. So it's like, you know, I think, I think the point of teaching it like that shouldn't be that the gas chamber is the ultimate evil. The point of it should be that killing this many people is the ultimate evil. And we're trying to figure out how to make it more humane. Like, we shouldn't be trying to make mass death more humane. We shouldn't be trying to make mass death. Like that's right. where the line ought to be. Right. And yeah, it's very frustrating. That kind of thing is very, when kids were dying of COVID uh, at the detention centers and probably still are surely COVID still exists and there's still children in detention centers. I was saying, you know, and Frank died of disease so just like something to think about, like just trying to get in there any way that I could, because you have to make such direct, direct connections for mm-hmm. people to allow it to stand and for it to maybe hit because of the way we've hammered home and educated about the Holocaust has been with so many specifics, with the idea that this sets the bar for evil and horror and the worst thing you've ever heard. Um, because of that, it all has to be exactly the same or like you're in trouble. <laughs> you, you got to get out of there. You know, we're doing it for the right reasons, whatever people were saying this with, you know, any America first campaign, people will be like, Hey, it kind of sounds like Nazi Germany or any other fascist country. And everyone's like, don't say that. <laughs> it's like, well, can't do anything. um, so I went to school in Germany and during one summer break, uh, I, one of my friends came over to visit And while we were there, or like while we were all in Germany, one of the places we went is we visited Dachau. And um, I I remember a lot of, I I remember it very visually, but I don't remember a lot of like, I don't remember too much specifics of it. Although what I do remember is uh, my mom and him talking. At this point, we were probably, he was, he must've been, he might've been 16. Like this is, we're, we're very young at this point. And at one point, my mom brought up the Japanese internment camps in um, in the U.S. And I don't remember exactly what his uh, what his exact response was to it, but it was something along the lines of, "Yeah, but that was different." And it's like, well, yeah, was those it different? weren't death camps. Those weren't death camps. You get a lot of people who died there. They died of disease from getting spoiled food. That's not a death camp. That's an internment camp. That's not a concentration camp. That's an internment camp. Words that were um synonyms until concentration camp got you know the the capitals the capital letter at the beginning of concentration and camp which is good and useful and um makes sense it's you know slavery versus american chattel slavery kind of a thing um but yeah i mean we learned about the internment camps and it was like yeah but not as bad because we weren't lining people up to kill them those were just prisons that we put people in for their oh, race. Right. That's that fine. makes it better. It's an outdoor prison that we put them in because we were worried they had something to do with Pearl Harbor. Which is <laughs> or what? Or they were helping the Japanese attack the United States, which is such a bizarre. <laughs> it's all very weird. And I think like at the same time a big part of the point is it doesn't matter which one was worse. Like if we're comparing the two, if we're comparing two very bad things, we've started from a bad place. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not where we want to be. 
Yeah. And and when you compare genocidal language too, which is I think a lot of what we're seeing happening in Palestine and Israel and coming directly from the Israeli government, you know, conversations where they call all the Palestinians animals. You know, we're not dealing with humans, we're dealing with animals. Things like this. Um, when you compare those, you get a different kind of pushback that I wanted to mention. There's obviously this really difficult dissonance that people don't know how to talk about between in the Holocaust, the Jews are victims. They are the victims um, along obviously with other groups that were targeted. And now not because of Jewish people as a whole, but because of the way Israel has characterized themselves as a representative of all Jewish people. Um, which I know plenty of Jews who would argue against. So I don't agree with that. But they are characterizing this as a similar Jewish struggle. Um, it makes it very difficult to compare because you have people who take issue with that, find it distasteful that you would compare an atrocity that happened to Jews um, to something else that Jews or the Jewish identity is involved in um, or is characterized by Jewish identity. And so much discussion of Israel ends up being tied at, to it as a reaction to the Holocaust, which is not historically accurate, to be really clear. Um, it's part of it, but it's Zionism and where people wanted to move to and when that process started preceded the Holocaust. Um this idea that it's the safe haven, that if we don't allow for, you know, Israeli sovereignty over the entire area, what have you, let Israel do whatever they want to people, then that's what could let the Holocaust happen again. You hear that a lot. Like, this is the only thing standing in between um, another Holocaust happening again. People need to need a place to go to stop that from happening again. And it's this really sort of tricky and I think um, sort of like despicable turn to use that identity as part of it. But it's what also makes it difficult to compare to. You, you, it feels really tricky to compare the Holocaust to anything going on with Israel because of how Israel uses Judaism and the Holocaust within their own rhetoric as part of the reason for Israel to exist and to behave the way it does as a government. Um, and again, I've said this like a million times, but Israel does not stand for all Jews. Plenty of Jews don't agree with either Israel's policy or um, not the existence of Israel, but just like the way it exists as an ethno state. Plenty of people who are Jewish disagree with this. This is Israel's own doing often to conflate these two things so that you cannot criticize the actions of the Israeli government. But it makes it really frustrating. I've been really happy to see when they've been accepting awards for Zone of Interest, them bringing it up. Um, because you never just want to be like the only person saying, having the filmmakers be like, and you know, this is pretty related to what's happening in Gaza is a big deal to me, <laughs> I think. Well, uh, no. especially with the way that this particular conflict has specifically 
been a bit of a taboo in Hollywood. Like, um, the Ukraine conflict, everyone in Hollywood is very happy to express uh, solidarity with Ukraine, which is great. Hmm. However, they have no connection to it. All of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but this the Israeli conflict, there are people, well, especially in North America, but in Hollywood as well, there are people who have a direct connection to this. So all of a sudden, you know, they can't, they can't blindly ex- express solidarity with one side because it's, it's not, they're close to this. They can't actually just, they, they can't have an opinion that is the right opinion because it's a thing where all of a sudden they, you know, are very conscious of speci- of specific opinions related to where they stand on this issue. They can't just stand, no one in Hollywood, very few people in Hollywood, but almost no one in Hollywood is, has any specific interest in uh, Russia taking over Ukraine. That's just something that they can say the right opinion on this is to be, is to have solidarity with Ukraine. And it's very easy to have that opinion. There isn't an easy right opinion with Israel because people in Hollywood have a connection to it. Yeah. And I don't know how to say this. This is always so hard to talk about. There are, and this is like historically true. We saw this right where, um, Jewish actors got together and they they said they were not one of the underrepresented groups listed by the Academy to be included. And when you read that whole letter and you get to it, it gets into immediately talking about October 7th. Um, and it, it goes from talking about Jewish actors to clearly talking about Israel in one breath. Um, and so there's that conflation there as well. Um, I think that there are Jewish actors who don't agree with what Israel is doing that would find it very difficult to talk about this. I know how education about Israel works for a lot of Jewish people within your synagogue, the summer camp you go to, things like this. They're very, there's a lot of brainwashing that happens there. Um, And all of these things are being conflated in Hollywood as well. I, I thought of that letter because in that letter they talked about the like Jewish founding fathers of Hollywood, that a lot of Hollywood has roots in Jewish people. It's not the mm-hmm. Jews don't control Hollywood. I don't believe that. That's ridiculous. But there are a lot of, there is a lot of Jewish influence just within Hollywood. It's not a bad thing. It's a good well, thing in my opinion. But And I think, um, I mean, Babylon was a little bit about this, but not as much. But like, um, when you think about, when you hear people talk about the early days of Hollywood, Hollywood is where marginalized people went because there was, it was the wild, it was kind of the wild West. You could go there and you could potentially make a name for yourself. You could do good. You could do exciting things in entertainment that you couldn't do in New York because their entertainment scene was built up. Hollywood wasn't. So anyone who's marginalized is going to go there. Like it's not wild to say that there were Jewish founding fathers of Hollywood because they probably wouldn't have wouldn't have thrived in Oklahoma. Right. And yeah, there are communities of Jews that's very common in like the America American diaspora. You see mm-hmm. that. Um and it makes perfect sense 
Hollywood makes perfect. There's a lot of things about this that are why it makes sense. It's an industry that, like you're saying, isn't attached to an existing power structure that Christians have already taken over. And Mm -hmm. so there's room for new industry and for people to work together. And when you're marginalized people, you work with other marginalized people. You don't like bring in some weird guy who hates you (laughs) to like work with you like right away. That's not who you bring in. And so because of this, like we do see a lot more pushback and I think it's a lot more dangerous to talk about Israel. And we know that's true because we've seen people be punished for it already. Punished for saying like the most innocuous stuff. I mean, calling for a ceasefire is so innocuous. Like it, it's so who's in disagreement about a ceasefire Mm. is crazy. I can't imagine being like, no, keep firing at them. It's like such a crazy position to take. Um, in almost any conflict. So Uh even that, though, has gotten people not fully blacklisted yet, as far as we can tell, but fired, just straight up fired from their jobs, which is crazy. So we don't hear people talking about it. They snuck one in at the Grammys when Sinead O'Connor's name was put up. Like, that's what they, you know, almost to honor her, they were able to say ceasefire. (laughs) Like, that's it. You know, I mean, uh, like, that's as far as you can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sinead O'Connor would have been an awful lot louder about that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's that's part of the reason that I am a little sad that Mika Levy isn't nominated here because um, they have, the, they recently accepted the award for best score. Um, I don't know where it was. It was at a different awards show. But they had a whole speech about that, exactly what you're saying. And uh, I hope that, um, you know, I hope this movie wins a lot of awards because I am very happy that the filmmakers know, I mean, the fil- obviously the filmmakers know what this movie is about, but they know what it's about and they know the importance of, that, of communicating that and that not everyone is getting the message and that even the people that are getting the message need to get it more. Like, they they are very conscious about the fact, you know, the thing that Jonathan Glazer said, this movie is not about then it's about now. And it, that, that can't be said enough times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope they bring it up. I hope someone brings it up. We've gone through a lot of award shows now where no one is bringing it up. That's really crazy to see just nothing. I think that, um, Unfortunately, that is where I am going to have to call it for this. I am, I would love to talk more, but unfortunately I have no more time. No worries. Thank you so much for coming on, Rach. Uh, At this point, sometimes we give like a number rating to the movie, but that seems like a weird thing to do right now. I don't know. It's great. Go see it. If you haven't seen Zone of Interest, please do. It's phenomenal. I definitely think it's my front runner for so many of these awards and even the and even the one or two awards where it's not even the one award where it's not my front runner i'd be very happy to see it win because i want this movie to get awards so that people can give good speeches that people listen to yeah i feel the exact same if, if it has to win there then it has to win there <laughs> just wanted to win yeah. something um so where can people find more of you if people can <laughs> find more of you um i'm on tiktok (laughs) um uh, no i will not stop talking 
Um, I have a Substack where I haven't talked about this at all. <laughs> but that's really it. Um, I'm sure we can just put the same Substack link in that you have before. <laughs> yeah, do. I'll. I think the Substack link that I have before isn't about a specific, isn't to a specific article, so it should be the same one. Yeah, that should be totally yeah. fine. But yeah, that's pretty and much it. If, if you do end up putting something up about this on your Substack at any point in the future, I can update the description. Okay, cool. Thank you, so. and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. On uh, it, this wasn't short notice, but it was a very <laughs> hectic planning cycle. So thank you for bearing with me for that. And uh, you know, I talked about it. I, I talked about the behind the scenes more than I should have. People are supposed to not <laughs> see that part. No, it's all seamless. All of this was so easy. We've been planning it for weeks. It's yeah, fun. yeah. Uh, the document has existed for several days. So yeah, we've both been working a lot on it. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, thank you once again, Rachel. Uh, and I will we'll have you on again sometime soon. I have I have some ideas. Awesome. <laughs>